I'm on absolutely nobody's side. I thought that this just sucked all around in every conceivable way, but it gets to the core of a lot of issues that are, in a lot of ways, pretty germane to the New York Times. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, December 12th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I discuss the union battle at the New York Times and the walkout by Times staffers last week. Did it help or hurt the journalists at the Times? And can Times management finally figure out how to handle these labor disputes and their increasingly restive workforce? We hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Monday, everybody. I hope the holiday season is treating everyone well and you had a great weekend. I'm joined today, as I am every Monday, by John Kelly, my boss, friend, mentor, <laughs> style guide. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I actually got a kick, John, out of the when we were in New York for Cohan's book party. I know it's coming here. It was just funny after like ensconcing myself in Los Angeles for four years now and then, you know, going back to New York and like the the type of clothes people wear generally. It's just its just something I noticed. Like in LA, no one puts on a blazer. People don't really wear collared shirts that much, to be honest. Then you go to New York and this is very like, every dude, when it gets cold out in New York, wears a blue or white button down with a like navy or black sweater pulled over it so the collar peeks out and then jeans or khakis. It was just like funny to see the uniforms of the New York media world versus the LA like tech media world, which I have all those things in my wardrobe. I'm not negging. Yeah, we definitely, um, the the puck uniform was in full effect. We just needed our <laughs> like oversized, uh, you know, jackets that you see quarterbacks at the University of Wisconsin wearing in, in like December games, you know, uh, over it. But yeah, a lot, lot, of, lot of dark blue. I think Joe and I looked identical. We'll have to get you back next December for another um, cold weather puck party where we can make sure that the, the the trend lives on. Speaking of New York media, this is one of the stories, this is a great media story for us. It's one of the stories that a lot of people in media care about and no normal people do. <laughs> uh, and that is the, <laughs> the New York Times staff staged a one-day walkout on Thursday from the newsroom in a dispute over pay and benefits. Times staffers have been without a contract since March 2021. They're looking for pay raise, basically, and a retroactive bonus. A representative for the Times itself said the union's proposal would add more than $100 million in costs over the length of the contract, which, quote, would make it difficult to sustain our investment in journalism. This is one of the most profitable uh, news organizations in the world. No outcome from this walkout, necessarily. A lot of people at the Times were antsy that this was coming. It happened. And they are now still negotiating and went back to work. John, whose side are you on? A former New York Times employee 
slash now management. <laughs> I'm on absolutely nobody's side. I thought that this just sucked all around in every conceivable way. But it gets to the core of a lot of issues that are, in a lot of ways, pretty germane to the New York Times. The New York Times is a $6 billion market cap company that's part of a dual-class uh, shareholder structure, meeting that the Salzburgers have all the power, even though they own, I think, probably a little bit less than 10% of the company. And the CEO, Meredith Coppett-Levin, who I'm not shy about saying I admire a lot and think is great, oversees basically half the company, right? She oversees the business side of the company. And Joe Kahn, who's executive editor, oversees the the newsroom, which is a, you know, multi-thousand person sprawling operation. And it all rolls up to A.G. Salzberger, who actually I went to high school with, who was Arthur then. The, uh, he's only been A.G. In the, in the last number of years. And so it's just confusing. It is different from any other media company out there. And it's not a small company. You know, a $6 billion is material. I think that a one-day walkout is obviously ineffective. I think that the fact that top people like Peter Baker and Michael Shearer didn't participate shows you how half-hearted uh, some of the support was. The fundamental challenge here is that, by and large, many things are happening all at once. The New York Times newsroom is similar to an, an academic environment more than a business environment. People work there because of a calling. As a result, there probably are way more employees than there need to be to economically fulfill the number of jobs, hence the union involvement. Therefore, there are people at the New York Times who are underpaid and some who are probably paid fairly, but there are some who are drastically underpaid. And then there are some who it's unclear what the value proposition is is. And, and that's just part of the culture of the place. You, you hear this all the time when you listen to the daily ads that the Times is a place that proudly publishes work that might take years to produce. And as uh, Scott Galloway said on Pivot the other day, investigative journalism is not a very profitable business. So this is really hard to wrap your arms around other than to say the Times is, is clearly divided in a way that you see from time to time. This has happened before and will happen again. But what's really different to me and interesting is that a few years ago, James Bennett, who was then the leader of the opinion section, which is a role that, that reports right to A.G. Salzberger, published an op-ed written by Tom Cotton about bringing in the troops to, to suppress violence that had taken place as a sort of counter-reaction to the mass reckoning this country was going through about race. Cotton had made a similar statement days earlier in Congress. This was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for, for all of us. The Times regretted publishing the piece, but Salzberger stood by... Bennett, who was in many ways considered the heir apparent to take over the newsroom, and then completely capitulated after the newsroom basically revolted against it. This moment two years ago was a high point or, or a data point suggesting how the employees, they had a voice that management didn't know how to handle, and they were incredibly powerful. And now, a couple of years later, I think we're seeing that the Times, which is near the peak of its powers in many ways, has reined in the employees. I saw the confidence statements that Meredith made and some that Joe Kahn made. I think they realized that the people who work at the New York Times love working there more than they more than they are, are angry about wages. Many of them, even the most obstreperous, would probably do this for free on some level. I don't want to minimize the economic issues they're fighting over, but, but it's a calling. Either way, the balance of power has swung back to management, and it's just as simple as that. I was looking at Twitter the other day when this happened, and Thursday was a really big news day. This was the day of the Britney Griner release, The Prisoner Exchange with Victor Booth, The Merchant of Death. And, you know, there was a big event at the White House, so you needed reporters at the White House to cover it. And according to a bunch of reports that came out after this, people were still looking at Wordle and people were still going to the New York Times app 
because it was such a big news day. And, you know, the big parts of their businesses, Wordle is a piece of this, but like the New York Times cooking app, I'm sure people were, weren't like striking in solidarity and not like looking up like a nice, like slow cooked braised pork recipe on the New York Times app. I just think this is one of those things where a lot of reporters were talking about it and not that many people, unless you're on Twitter and knew it would happen or were abiding in some kind of solidarity by not going to the New York Times website. And I say all of these things to sort of punctuate what you said earlier, which is I don't know how effective this is. If anything, it shows how little power reporters have in the public mind. I mean, we had a huge threat of a railroad strike that was averted by you know the government unions and the rail companies. I mean, billions of dollars would have been threatened there. I mean, like 40% of the nation's products move on rail. So much of our exports and imports run on rail. Like the New York Times isn't an, an essential sort of like labor product for consumers, I think. And that's why it didn't really get a lot of attention. And I think a lot of the articles about this tiptoed around what we're talking about right now, which was it wasn't effective. One, people don't really like journalists. They want to. Uh, <laughs> so there's that. And then two, not a lot of Americans pay for news. I think about 20%, which is higher than a lot of other countries, but still like the New York Times paying subscribers probably care about it. The New York Times paying subscribers probably look a lot like a lot of the employees you just mentioned, sort of center left, progressive, activisty. The New York Times has moved to a subscription model, has become, you know, both a news organization, but also a content mill for NPR tote bag carriers, like center left college educated people. They cover a lot of stories that that audience cares about. So yeah, I mean, I think those sort of readers would care, but the public at large, the sort of came and went. And I, I don't think it made, man, I don't think it made the reporters look more powerful. I think it made them look less. And I think it also exposed what people who, who have spent a lot of time around this company understand, which is that when you're talking about, uh, I think 80% of the union supported newsroom signed the pledge. So that's like, you know, I think 1,200, 1,300 people. There is no actual profile of that type of reporter. I think they all make within a, a relatively narrow pay band. But uh, what I recognized from my experience at the Times was that there are a lot of people who come there from family money and don't need their salary. It's almost an afterthought. It's a meaningful population. There are many people who desperately need it. And after they achieve some success at the Times, they use it as a platform to make more money commercially elsewhere through various uh, book deals, speaking arrangements, et cetera, et cetera. But the interests aren't aligned. The, the union wants to pretend that they are, but the newsroom contains multitudes of incentives. I think that that's why this is really a Pyrrhic victory. For a day they came together and expressed some solidarity. But at the end, this is, you know, a very competitive place where reporters are, are often sharp elbowing each other. You know, we used to call those glass offices in the third floor crying rooms when I worked there because people would just go there to, to, to cry after some editor had made them feel terrible or, or some colleague had gotten in their way. This is not a place that is likely to find common ground. The other um, sort of underappreciated part of this too is the Times is half the market cap of Paramount Global. I, I think that you know the, the transactional value of those companies would, would, would look very, very different. It is not a small company given its peer set. And I think that the fear was that right-sizing a lot of contracts will add nine figures to the balance sheet. And that's material, right? That means that, that, that they're going to have to either make that up in revenue or inefficiencies. They absolutely must find a way to pay market 
where it's it's necessary. But there are also uh, areas where I think they have to be honest about what the market will bear in terms of staffing. You know, having a union actually makes that hard because they're very limited in what they can do without having to negotiate through the union. So this is going to play out for another generation. Uh, I think the good news is that Times reporters actually will find that they're going to have more options than they've, than they've had in the past. The only way this is going to get corrected is by seeing talent take advantage of those options. That's the only way the Times company will adjust. It's not going to be walkouts. It's, it's going to be capitalism. John, I'll take a quick break and then talk to you about that talent question. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back, everyone. John, you mentioned talent. I think it was reported that Peter Baker and Michael Shear, two of the big name Washington reporters for the Times, they didn't participate in the walkout. I think about a thousand staffers did. Um, but, you know, they had to, I don't know how this worked. I'm not in the New York Times building. But like, someone had to cover the White House when Biden came out and talked about this prisoner swap, you know, like, like, how do you think that landed with other people at the company that these two like big name reporters didn't abide? The leadership of this has all been really challenging. Um, you know, Peter Baker has been an, an exemplar Times person for a long time. He's been able to simultaneously do the serious A1 White House work and was a good counterpart to Maggie during the Trump years where she could be the person who had all the dish and he could lend a, an aura of, of Timesman-ishness, which I think the, you know was an internal concern that the Times was veering too much in, into a, a little tabloid territory for a while. But and yet he's also created this kind of sideline with his wife, Susan Glasser, who used to be the editor of Politico, she writes at The New Yorker now, of these like big, serious books. They just did a Trump book. They did a James Baker book before that. And they have a townhouse where they host parties for big swell guys like our pal Bill Cohan uh, for book parties. They play by the rules and they're very much in the, in the inner circle I'm not surprised that he didn't participate. I don't know Peter, so I, I don't want to act like I have any information, but, but I'm not surprised to hear that. But I think what gets to the core of your question here is that the Times is enormous, and they have an enormous Washington infrastructure. So people think, or I thought when I was, when I was a kid in short pants working there, that rising to the top of a desk at the Times, being the Washington bureau chief or head of you know what was then arts and leisure, was a sort of king-making job. You know what a lot of it is? In some ways it is, and I'm not trying to disparage it, but it's also like doing the schedules for the like dozens, if not hundreds of people who operate within those units to make sure that everything runs smoothly and efficiently because the place is just so big. Therein lies the rub, Peter. It's just not an efficient market inside the place. And that's why 
people like Jonathan Martin took a huge pay decrease to go from Politico to the Times, and then a huge increase to go back from the Times to Politico. The Times' long-term bet is that the brand of the Times is so exalted that it can withstand any and all of those. And like, they're totally right. It can, you know, weeks after J. Mart left, Jonathan Swan, presumably fresh from his Axios winnings, comes back because he wants that credential. But I just have to think that over the longer term, the Times has to get this labor question right. It's going to have to force itself to make some hard calls about the personnel makeup of the organization. Does it make sense to have a sports infrastructure, even if it's only 100 people and you've just paid $500 million for the athletic? I can't imagine any strategic insight that would suggest that it does. There are a number of redundancies that it probably has to figure out in its own. And, and what management's doing here, although they get zero credit for it, is trying to forestall those issues and employ as many people as possible at, at the fairest terms that they can. There's another dynamic I noticed too. I don't think this applies to the New York Times too much, but I've seen it at other media organizations. Like sometimes the front people for this organizing are high impact journalists who have a real voice and real power. Sometimes they just are just like people who kind of aren't good. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> you know, like they sort of like in another company, you'd call them low performers. And so they found an outlet in, in organizing. And um, that's helpful um, for the workforce there, I think. But sometimes it's just like, who are you? And then I'm just saying that because it, it contrasts with what you said about how it's just like an inefficient workforce management. Any newsroom is because you have stars Peter Baker doesn't need to participate in this in this walkout. He just doesn't. He's got a lot of money, book deal. He's a star in, in, in his own way. And so you can see why he didn't participate. And then the other observation I had is just like, I know New York City is expensive. I lived there twice, <laughs> you know, both as a 20-something with no money and as an adult with some more money. And even then it was expensive. I think that if you see reporters on Twitter who work for the New York Times, you know, lamenting their pay, if you work for like the Tampa Bay Times or you work for like a local news station in another state, you know, you want to be paid that much money. You're like, you guys are complaining about this in journalism in 2022, getting paid six figures. Not everyone is, but it's sort of like, it's interesting because I just have a hunch that not every journalist in the country is lining up in solidarity with journalists from the New York Times because it is a extremely healthy, relatively, company compared to other media organizations. And journalists there get paid a lot compared to journalists elsewhere who don't. That makes their solidarity push even more thorny. It just speaks to the reality that the Times is not as unified on the inside as, as it wants to be. And I assume that they will win concessions in this round of negotiation. I have no doubt about it. But they won't win enough to push this off further. And that's too bad because uh, I think management does owe them more than they're going to give them. All right, John. Thanks for your insight as always, man. Uh, this was a good conversation and we will see you in the Slack this week. See you in the picket lines, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. 
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.